what was happening before the lapse or the relapse? What was going on in my mind? What was going on in my body? What was going on in the environment? What was going on in my, what, what was my emotional state like? Initially, you may not really be sure, but if you really begin to think about it, stuff will come back to you. Hey friends, welcome to Genuine Life Recovery with me, Jody Stevens. Today's show is part one of relapse prevention. I'll be sharing relapse prevention strategies in the next two shows. So please share this podcast with anyone you know who struggles with addiction. Maybe it's you, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member. I would love to be able to help them and bless them with some relapse prevention strategies or tips. In the last episode, we talked about how relapse, although not encouraged, is most often a normal part of the recovery process. So anytime we try to make a significant life change, right, it's hard. We experience setbacks. We're trying to break bad habitual behavior that most likely started maybe before we even remember. If you struggle with addiction, chances are it's been part of your life for years and years and years, maybe decades. I drank and smoked weed from the time I was 14 until I was 33 years old when I finally quit. Okay, that's a long time. So I had some stops and some starts and some stops and some starts and some stops and some starts until I finally got it. That's normal. So the three things I'm going to be talking about for relapse prevention, number one is medication, which isn't for everyone. Number two is identification of high-risk situations that are likely to cause relapse. And number three is developing skills to deal with these high-risk situations, whether they are environmental, emotional, physical, things like that, chances are they're a combination of different things. So relapse prevention tip number one, medication. There is medication out there that produces negative side effects or that helps people deal with withdrawal and deal with detox. For alcohol, there's stuff like an abuse, which is something my brother had taken before in his life. Um, he sadly passed away of his addiction in 2015, but they try, had him on some different medication. What an abuse does is you, you take it and if you decide you're going to drink, guess what happens? You get really sick. For opioid addiction like heroin, there's methadone. We've all heard of methadone clinics and stuff like that. Methadone can be taken to reduce cravings and reduce withdrawal. It also blocks the effects of opioids. So there's medication like that. So if you try to use heroin or another narcotic while taking it, doesn't do anything. <laughs> How disappointing. No, I'm just kidding, right? But but that's the point, right? So those are just two medications. There's plenty more. So um, in recovery, um, for, for this type of stuff, right, you may want to check into an addiction treatment center, uh, th that sort of thing. And the reason that um, these drugs can help, and look, I know it seems crazy to treat addiction with a drug, but these are drugs designed to assist in withdrawal. They're also designed to have to where they block 
the effects of the substance. So if you have a lapse, right, if Johnny comes over with drugs and you screw up, guess what? Doesn't do anything. So you might be thinking, well, that sounds kind of crazy, but I mean, it's kind of cool. I mean, I wish they had that for food, right? You know, you just, you eat the whole cake. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if they had something? Well, it blocks all the calories, you know, you won't gain anything, right? I don't know. I'm sure they're working on that. Maybe they have that. I don't know. Um, but so here's the thing. For instance, alcohol withdrawal can kill a person. It's very dangerous. There's certain anti-seizure prevention drugs that are needed to administer to severe alcoholics. My brother had a seizure one time on my floor. He turned white as a ghost. I was getting ready to take him into a treatment center, just completely seizured out. I called the paramedics. He had to be hospitalized, you know, Valium, all that stuff. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I was like 20. This was a long time ago. I, I didn't know what was happening. So a lot of times people, oh, well, you know, they think, well, you can't take drugs to deal with detox and all that stuff. So that's not always true. Sometimes you need to stabilize a person. And again, sometimes there's drugs that help with withdrawal and with detox because Here's the thing, um, with, with withdrawal and the first part of maintenance, you have to overcome the effects of the changes the drug has had on your brain chemistry over time, your brain and your body. So for instance, with a lot of drugs like opioids, your brain and body is so altered from, um, from taking so much of it and from tolerance that it functions normally with the substance and it does not function normally without it. So there are drugs that we can take to begin to help in that process. It's usually short term, but can be needed and sometimes to save a life. So that's why tolerance is dangerous. That's why seizures and things like this can also happen with withdrawal. Tolerance and withdrawal can be very dangerous. Our body has adapted to the drug. And so a lot of times what happens when we come into detox and we try to quit and we remove the substance, the cravings can be absolutely out of control and they can be um, abnormal. The reason they can be abnormal is because we've now changed our brain chemistry and we have to change it back. Luckily, our bodies will change back. Luckily, our bodies, if I mean, if they can adapt to the drug, they adapt once we take it away. So... So that's one um, way early in sobriety is there are medications to help with relapse prevention, i.e., you know, cravings, withdrawal. Now, most addicts also have what's called co-occurring issues, which means there is uh, an addiction, but then there's also some other underlying issues like anxiety, like depression and things like that. For me, it was really, really bad anxiety and I had really bad insomnia and I had really low self-esteem and things like that. And so seeking therapy for those underlying issues and then possibly stabilizing with anxiety or depression medication initially can also be very helpful because if you're not depressed and freaked out and anxious, there's a good chance you're not going to drink. You see what I'm saying? Now, medication's not for everybody. I'm not, I'm not this big proponent of meds. Right now, I don't take any meds. 
but I had to for a time. There was a time when I had a major depressive episode. There was a time when I needed help with anxiety, particularly after removing the alcohol and the drugs. There are also which we're, what we're going to talk about therapeutic techniques that can prevent relapse. So number one, some medications. So also to prevent relapse is to start addressing the underlying issues, right? Because you, most of this detox medication, like I said, most people won't need this, but this is for people that are very far along in their addiction. Like I said, with my brother who was having these grand mal seizures, he had head injuries and things like that. So there are detox meds for people that are pretty far along. Now for me, I didn't have to do anything like that. I never had to go into a detox center. I didn't have tremors. I wasn't shaking. I didn't get shakes. I didn't have things like that, but I had severe anxiety and I had severe insomnia. And so there were times when I would be awake for 72 hours and I would have to go to a doctor and be like, help me. I have not slept in three days. I have to work. <laughs> At the time I was in radio and I was doing a morning show and I'd been awake for three days. I'm sure it was pretty interesting show. I don't remember, <laughs> but that was what I was dealing with. And so I would use the alcohol to calm the anxiety. And then I had performance anxiety because I was in the entertainment industry which is all messed up, you know? And so there was just a lot of stuff going on. But by using a substance to cover it all up, I was never dealing with any of the issues. So drinking as much as it seemed to help me, really, it just made it worse. And then you go in for anxiety and they give you Xanax or Alprazodone. And so now you're taking Xanax and you're drinking. And, and so now, right now you've added another substance, you know? And so it took a long time to work things out and get all that stuff out of my system and really work on the underlying issues. So we get these substances, substances out of our system and again, maybe we may need some help with some medication, but then the real work of recovery needs to start. For instance, if you put someone on anti-anxiety and antidepressive medicine and you never work, so the point of medication is to stabilize you, then you work with a sponsor and a therapist on the underlying issues. So eventually, hopefully, you can wean off the medication and learn new coping skills and you've hopefully kind of rewired your brain a little bit, got to some of the underlying issues, and then begin the process of being able to deal with life, as they say in AA and NA life on life's terms. So relapse prevention tip number two is identification of high-risk situations that are likely to lead to relapse. So we want to look at working through um, some of the psychological, some of the emotional, and some of the environmental issues related to our addiction. And so we want to look at what's called triggers or cues. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that. What triggers me to drink? So one of them could just be this habitual thing where every afternoon, what would happen to me is every afternoon, the crazy thinking would come in. I'd be at work and 
the night before I would wake up with a hangover. I would wake up sick and I would say, oh, that's it. I'm never drinking again. I'm so done. I'm not going to live like this anymore. Blah, blah, blah. And then right around two or three o'clock, all of a sudden I'd be thinking, beer, wine, that sounds really good. Maybe some tequila. And then of course, my drive home was always right by the BevMo store. I mean, really? Okay. So you, you put those two things together. Now you've got a problem. And so inevitably I would forget about how awful I felt that morning because the evening sounded pretty good. So, and by the way, the most obvious relapse prevention is to get into a good recovery group or treatment center, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. Inpatient is when there is hospitalization, right? An outpatient, you know, depending on your level of addiction, an outpatient is where you would just be going to meetings and stuff like what I was doing. Because if you have a sponsor or someone to call, chances are you're not going to go into the liquor store because now someone's checking up on you, right? That uh, accountability. So getting um, another thing to do then is to getting a sponsor, getting a counselor. It's also really great to get a good therapist that can help you to work through these triggers. Because a lot of times we have been using a, and in our addiction for so long that we're operating almost on an emotionally unconscious level. We may have learned to stuff those emotions so long ago that we can get triggered and be cut off emotionally. So we're triggered, we're angry, but we're not really thinking about the, the whys and wherefores of it. We just go on auto mode and we cope and we, you know, shoot up or drink or, or whatever it is. So and, and an example for me is I began this emotional escapism when I was like five, I guess. And I would escape into music. I would escape in dreams and fantasies, books, different things like that. So once I started using drugs and drinking around 14, it was just this natural progression. And I never learned to deal with my emotions. But that escape behavior. So if you're an addict, you can probably look back to even before you started using and realizing I was in this kind of escapism mode long before the alcohol and stuff entered. So when we get triggered and relapse, a lot of times we don't know why. We need to figure out why and develop some skills to deal with it. So, uh, I mean, like even now, <laughs> I can get into this escapism where, you know, I, I love crime drama. So I get on Netflix or, you know, something like that. And I just start watching, you know, one of them was Mindhunter. Oh my God. You know, I love psychology, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm into this thing, you know, and then it's like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to do that again. You know, like 17 episodes later, you're like, wow, that was 17 hours of my life. You know, I can never get back. Right. Um, so, I, you know, those are just things to be aware of. Um, and so here is, here's an exercise that you can do. There's a lot of different exercises and ways to identify triggers. Now, one way to identify triggers is through relapse itself. So let's say you have a relapse. So you get with a sponsor, you get a pad of paper, you start to take notes. 
what was happening before the lapse or the relapse? What was going on in my mind? What was going on in my body? What was going on in the environment? What was going on in my, what, what was my emotional state like? Initially, you may not really be sure, but if you really begin to think about it, stuff will come back to you. One of the things you can do is you get out a piece of paper and on the left side of the column, you write triggers. And then you ask yourself questions like, um, when am I most likely to drink or use drugs? What situations or people are high risk for me? What feelings are associated with drinking and using drugs? For me, it was feeling trapped. It was feeling like I had no power. It was dealing with, in my corporate world, with bosses and male authority figures. I felt like I didn't have any power, but that was not true. So one of the things they say is that addiction is a replacement for what we lack the courage to do. I was afraid to stand up for myself. I'd let them walk all over me or I'd feel powerless. I'd go home and get drunk. I was taking my power back, right? And that's the beauty of the serenity prayer, which tells us, God grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change, that say my boss is an asshole, right? Um, the courage to change the things I can, me, I do have power. I can say something, right? And then the wisdom to know the difference. And so learning to be assertive, learning, I mean, I'm not assertive, I'll never be assertive, but learning to be, to at least to stand up for myself, to develop healthy communication, which we'll talk about as well, that is huge in the recovery process. And that's partly what the serenity prayer is there for. A lot of people don't even know what it means, but when you really start to break that down, right, there are, th you know, God, give me the courage now instead of drinking to say something to the boss, right? And then there's a huge release when we've now taken our power back in a healthy way. A hell yeah. yeah, we may be powerless over the addiction, but we're not powerless over how we handle situations, okay? So, Triggers in the left column. Then in the right hand, you will answer questions like, you know, what do I like about drinking and using? What do I really enjoy? What, what is the attraction? What does it give me in return for my efforts? So what happens is now you've got these triggers over here. And then on the other side of the column, you have reasons why you're even involved in this addiction in the first place. Well, then you compare the two columns. For instance, in my left column, I might have written feeling powerless, right? Feeling trapped, feeling angry. And then in the right-hand column, I might have written things like, um, I like alcohol because it soothes, soothes my anger. It soothes my anxiety. Well, then you start connecting those things, right? A lot of people like to drink because they don't feel so angry anymore. A lot of people like to drink because it calms them down. So you connect those things like I did. I began to then understand that emotions of anger and anxiety were huge triggers for me, and they were. And so then in the third column, 
we create what's called alternatives, right? So what, what can I do instead? What can I do when I know, oh, you know, this is coming. I can feel this anger coming on. What can I do? I can pray, right? I'm a, a Christian. I can have a scripture that I read. I can call a sponsor. I can go to the gym. I can go to a swim. I can go to a meeting. I can watch a movie, hopefully not 17 episodes of Mine Hunter on Netflix, but you know, <laughs> it, it was very good. Um, so, so those, so beginning to recognize those triggers, okay, is a huge relapse prevention tip. And then what we want to do is figure out, like we were talking about, what can I do instead? Ways to now handle these situations. And by the way, if you want to read more about this, um, I'm working on my license, my master's degree in addiction counseling, uh, licensed alcohol drug counselor. And so, so this, um, uh, worksheet I was telling you about actually comes from um, Foundations of Addiction Counseling. If you uh, want to check that out by David Capuzzi and Mark Stafford. And uh, so there it is. Uh, it's a textbook. <laughs> so uh, you could read that. If you have anxiety, you could read that before bed. It'll naturally release a lot of GABA, right? Um, uh, you know, you read that, uh, take some melatonin, uh, and you'll be asleep in no time, right? Okay, so we talked about medication, identifying triggers, and high-risk situations. Um, are you with me so far? I'd love to hear from you in the comments section. What are some relapse prevention tips that work or have worked for you? So number three is develop skills now to deal with these situations. Okay, so I'm I'm detoxed. I've got the booze out. Um, now I've got to figure out what do I do when I'm triggered and I'm having a panic attack or there's a lot of fear and anger going on. So this is where I'm going to go to a meeting, right? Like we were just talking about, I'm going to call my sponsor. I'm going to get into therapy. These are all things that can help strengthen our social network. Also working on coping skills and self-confidence. So negative emotions are the number one cause of relapse. And I would also venture to guess that isolation is up there too. So when we can begin to work on our emotions and how to be successful in working through those triggers, it's going to help us emotionally, but it's also going to increase our self-efficacy and or self-confidence, which is also a relapse prevention. So counseling or assertiveness training can work very well as well as a relapse prevention because we want to work on healthy communication. So um, a lot of times with addiction, we maybe as children, never really learned healthy communication. This is very, very common in the codependent family or in a dysfunctional family where healthy communication was not exhibited. Uh, it, it may have been very passive aggressive. I used to be very passive aggressive in my communication where it was either, right, um, fight or flight, you know, feast or famine, right? I would either just completely ignore the situation or scream and yell. So learning 
healthy communication styles. So healthy assertive communication is very different than aggression. Because what happens is when we act aggressively, passive aggressive, like I used to do, get into these road rage incidences and things like that, it can be very triggering. Because now we feel crappy about ourselves because we haven't handled the situation very well. We were passive aggressive. We were yelling. We got into road rage. We got into it with someone. And now we have guilt and anxiety and all these things are going on. And, and now we want to drink or use because we feel bad about how we handled a situation that it wasn't really our fault because no one ever taught us to deal with conflict in a healthy way anyway. So do you see how addiction is so often attached to these things, these emotions that are triggered because of communication skills and emotional skills that we've never learned. It's not our fault. So enhancement of self-confidence and the ability to apply coping skills are desperately, desperately needed. You can't just, like they say, put the plug in the jug. That's just the beginning. The other thing to do is to begin to practice. So have a plan. If you have a job interview, you practice usually. I usually rehearse. You imagine what sorts of <laughs> dumb questions they're going to ask you. If you were a serial, what would you be? You know, I don't know where they come up with this stuff. But so you kind of you work that out. Well, this is your life. So it's the same thing, right? What are we going to do at the Christmas party when people are drinking and Uncle Bob starts yelling at everyone again or Sue starts going on about politics or whatever is very triggering for you? Maybe it's a family member or a friend that just keeps hounding you about something, or, or maybe it's your boss. It's, it's a work situation that's constantly causing you stress. How are we going to handle these situations? How are we going to avoid certain places, not drive by the dealer's house or the liquor store, right? If it's unavoidable, call our sponsor at that time. We pray, we read a scripture, we do something. We, we have a plan. So whatever that plan is for you, you need to have a plan. There's also emotional interventions where we work on reframing our thoughts and our negative emotions. I often will practice gratitude in really dark times, and I feel like it's it's been so instrumental uh, in recovery for me. I will say things like, you know, these are self-soothing exercises. You know, it's all going to be okay. God loves me. It's all going to be okay. These are all the things I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for my husband. I'm thankful for my home. I'm thankful for, I mean, look how far I've already come. Look how far you've come. You're watching this video. Chances are you're doing some things to help with your sobriety. Sure, maybe there's some missteps, but look at how far you've already come. So these are instrumental in changing our thinking patterns, because often for addicts, they can be very, very, very negative. And a lot of what we're thinking is not necessarily true. And so that, so there's some self-soothing and coping mechanisms and those also, so we have some emotional interventions and then cognitive interventions as well, um, which is 
changing our thinking patterns as well. So like, like in AA, they'll often talk about, you know, the committee in my head. Um, for me as a Christian, it's like the enemy, you know, Satan's attacking me. The enemy's coming at me. I got to fight against this. And we may ask ourselves, is this true? in this moment. One of the things I did a video on emotional sobriety that you should check out, um, an episode on emotional sobriety, because what that is, is the ability to handle our emotions in a healthy way without going to a substance. So for instance, sometimes we can just take a step back from our emotions and we observe ourselves for having terrible, depressive thoughts, suicidal thoughts, things like that. I've experienced that too, where I say, okay, I'm not going to act on any of this stuff. For me, I had to learn what, what I often do is I realize for me how my emotions cycle. I am very emotional and my emotions cycle all over the place. And I, I will say to myself, okay, I know this feels really bad and dark and freaky right now, but in a couple hours, it'll probably go away. <laughs> you know, in a couple days, it'll probably go away. So that's that's helpful is to understand that the other thing that can be um, very helpful is asking ourselves, is, is this true? Because sometimes when we're triggered with a really strong emotion of anxiety or depression or something like that, it can it can go all the way back to maybe a scary situation when we were a child that we may have stuffed or may not even be aware of, or maybe we were, but we could say, okay, this might've been true when I was five, but it's not true today. I'm not powerless today. There are things I can do today. And so that can be very, very, very important is just to stop, take a step back and think about what is really true for us in that moment. So those are three relapse prevention strategies. We talked about medication. We talked about identifying high-risk situations and triggers. And we talked about developing skills to deal with those situations. So what intervention strategies work for you? Love to hear from you in the comments section. And thanks for hanging out with me. Join me next time, Relapse Prevention Part 2. We're going to talk about self-efficacy, self-confidence, and what's called abstinence violation effect or black and white thinking. So tune in to find out about that. And please share this podcast on social media or with anyone you know who is struggling with addiction. Maybe it's a friend or family member. That would be awesome. Thanks for hanging out, friends, and see you next time.